0: A Japanese on with a
1: an a Hello and welcome to Good Friends, Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker, I'm Scott Norwood and I'm Matt Sanderson and this episode we're talking about how to build and maintain player engagement. But before all that, what's been happening recently? Well, we got some big news from Expo. Yes, indeed. Two-headed serpent. What award did it win exactly? I wasn't there.
0: Uh, well, I wasn't there for the drawing oh, up.
1: and neither was I. Yeah. But at least
0: I looked at it online. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we, best adventure. Woohoo! Yes, yes, we are absolutely delighted with the imminent release of Masks of Nialthep. We've done a recording with Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy of Chaosium about what to expect from the new edition. Yeah, the
1: experience of working on it and some of the things that are in there. So that'll be coming out probably to tie up with the release of Masks. While I'm delving even deeper into the world of online
2: gaming, uh, playtesting our Chapter 7 of Poison Tree uh, with a group on Tuesday nights, that means that I'm not able to go to the MKRPG Club. So for those that are going there,
1: Paul... (laughs) <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> well, I've kind of stepped into your shoes, Matt, because I've taken over the temporary role of treasurer at the club, collecting people's money, but I'm also playing in Red and Pleasant Land, the adventure for Lamentations of the Flame Princess, written by Zach Smith. Our friend Ollie Palmer is running that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting exploring an Alice in Wonderland-style world in a D&D-type game. And with vampires. Well... Spoilers, But yes, there may be vampires. And we keep dying and coming back to life. It's kind of weird.
0: <laughs> okay, I, I played this with Ollie before, a couple of years ago, when, when, the, when the campaign first came out. And yeah, we, we didn't die and come back, I think, in that one. But uh-huh. it's a wonderfully weird setting. I did enjoy that an awful lot.
1: Yeah, I look forward to reading the book after having played it. Mm. And a very pretty book, which I'll refer to later in the episode.
0: yes <laughs> And now, the Lovecraftian Word of the Week.
2: And this week, our word is fantasy. That's fantasy with a PH, folks. And our cake spelling of fantasy, that's with an F for folks. Noun. One. Imagination, especially when extravagant and unrestrained. Two. An imagined or conjured up sequence of events, especially one provoked by an unfulfilled psychological need. Three. An abnormal or bizarre sequence of mental images as a hallucination. Four. A form of fiction based
0: on imaginative or fanciful characters and premises. The reason I chose this as a word of the week, it was another example like show, spelt with an E, where Lovecraft has willfully used an archaic and unusual spelling of a word just to make it stand out. And I think that makes it Lovecraftian, because what is more Lovecraftian than using a spelling of a word that was correct about 200 years before you were
1: doing it? And also it looks more like phantasm on the page as well, rather than fantasy. Mm -hmm.
0: It's phantasm with a Y, not fantasy with a pH.
2: Mm.
0: And one thing I didn't realise was that the spelling of fantasy with I P-H, I don't know if it's still current, but was used an awful lot in psychological texts, I think particularly by uh, Freud and his immediate followers. Particularly in some of those definitions there is, you know, a, a, an imagined series of events or the forming of mental images. If you
1: listen to this excerpt of the podcast, About ten times, that's enough for you to tick your psychoanalysis skill. So, you know, go ahead, do that, pick up a few more
0: percent in. Uh, And if you listen to it more than ten times, you'll need someone else to tick their psychoanalysis skill on you. This appears ten times on the Lovecraftometer in his fiction as
1: fantasy, and three more times as fantasies.
0: And I think Lovecraft used it in the context of almost every definition we had there.
1: And talking of such things, let's have a look at how Lovecraft used the word. Fantasy, Ph., in his writings. From the statement of Randolph Carter In the lone silence
2: of that hoary and deserted city of the dead, my mind conceived the most ghastly fantasies and delusions, and the grotesque shrines and monoliths seemed to assume a hideous personality, a half sentience.
0: And from Herbert West, Reanimator. They knew, indeed, that West had been connected with activities beyond the credence of ordinary men. For his hideous experiments in the reanimation of dead bodies had long been too extensive to admit of perfect secrecy. But the final soul-shattering catastrophe held elements of demoniac fantasy which make even me doubt the reality of what I saw.
1: And from the shadow over Innsmouth. Can it be possible... That this planet has actually spawned such things? That human eyes have truly seen as objective flesh what man has hitherto known only in febrile fantasy and tenuous legend? And now on to our main topic, building
2: player engagement.
0: What do we mean by player engagement?
2: Bums on seats and
1: staying there essentially yes but staying there because they're motivated to stay there and engaged with what's going on Super glue don't count no not or, really or,
0: nor does paying them or cutting the tendons in their legs strapping them down
1: so let's open up with how do we engage the players initially what even brings them to the table to play the game how do we grab their interest to actually come and join in with us
0: by promising to buy the snacks.
1: It depends. If it's a convention, generally I'll, um, I'll try and
2: be the best host I can be. I'll try and um, have stuff laid out for players, whether it be cocktails, hot drinks, cold drinks, various foods, sometimes it's well, it a full dinner.
1: That's nice, but does that make people come to your game? Do they come to your place just for the cocktails? No, it's an added bonus, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Why do people come to your games, though? I have no idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a good episode, folks. Yeah. Let's wrap it up there. <laughs>
1: well i'd say sometimes it's just the system there's a new system out or something like that and i think oh yeah i really want to play that there was blades in yeah. the dark recently and somebody was running it at the club and i thought oh yeah i really want to get in on that because i want to find out what this is all about it's like the the new thing and matt i've seen you sort of say oh yeah i really want to play unknown armies and if somebody's running it I'll mm-hmm. get in on it so it's just the system really you know you want to you like that system you want to play it I wouldn't so much say the system in that case. Um, the UA system is very unforgiving, but it's the setting I like, especially in regards to Unknown Armies. Okay, the yep. system
0: is probably the wrong word, but game. Yes. Yeah,
2: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess hand in hand with that, sometimes we might just want to play a setting. So rather than Unknown Armies, that's a whole game. But what if we're a big fan of a particular TV show? And there's a game based on it, like Firefly or something like that. It's just, oh, I love this show. Somebody's running a game in it. I'm into it. Other things that have drawn me into a game make me excited to want to play them. Sometimes it's simply a title. I'm sure we've all seen some cool titles for games. And it's it's a small hook, but it's kind of enough to to grab my interest. So oh. there, was, there was a game, No Country for Old Kobolds dragon with the girl tattoo and and things like this
0: yeah i I must admit one of the things that attracted me to unknown armies in the first place was the name right because it seemed like a very evocative unusual name and i i I remember the first time i think i met graham walmsley at a convention oh gosh must have been at least 10 years ago down on the south coast he signed up to play uh, Lampos and Bloom, an Unknown Armies game that I was running at the time. He just saw the name on the, the sign-up sheet and thought that it was a tactical miniatures game or something.
2: He was really in for a shock then. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, no, he said he was very pleasantly surprised, but he, you know, the, the name didn't let him know what to expect. And I guess because I'd heard of it in context, the, the name seemed very, very evocative. But I guess without the context, it's, it's quite oblique.
1: And sometimes just cool artwork. I mean, I would pick as a recent example Tales from the Loop. I've not played it, but it's had some really great images that are really evocative. Feels a bit kind of Stranger Things. I think it's kind of trading on,
0: but... Yeah, similarly, there was a game I picked up, a game called Deliria, a fairy tale set in the modern world. Someone described it as sort of Call of Cthulhu, but where the sense of horror is replaced by a sense of wonder. It's about intrusions of wonder into the mundane world. The thing that I think sold me on it when I first looked at the book was the fact that it had all this really gorgeous artwork and layout in it. But not just that the, the artwork looked pretty, but it looked like it was invoking the kinds of things that would make for a really cool game. And it's a great setting. I, mean, I don't think the system is playable at all, but it's an absolute goldmine of, of inspiration.
2: I think pretty much along the same vein, I could use that uh, same descriptor, just replaced the game title with Edge of Midnight for me. Mm. That was a wonderful front cover. That um, advertised itself as being exactly the kind of game that I want, an investigative, noir, edgy. The setting is amazing, but the mechanics are just dull
1: as ditch water. I mean, really dull. So engagement, getting players to the table, I mean, what took you to the table that you've most recently played in, Scott? You know, what, as a player,
0: would you uh, say drew yeah. you to it? <laughs> it th- th- this makes me realise how long it is since I actually last played a game. Sorry, that's not true. I've been playing an ongoing playtest of Lin Hardy's Children of Fear. But the thing that, that made me sign up for a game most recently was when Matt ran Cult at the club. What made me sign up for that was that there is a new edition of Cult, which uses, powered by the Apocalypse engine. And I love Apocalypse World and related games. But more importantly, I've always loved Cult as a game. Well, certainly as a setting, but uh, you know, the mechanics have always been a bit clunky for my taste. And I just really wanted to see how the new mechanics merged with the setting, and whether it made Cult into a game that that would excite me again.
2: Mm. Well, what about yourself, Matt? I'm normally quite a picky gamer. I'll only generally sign up for game systems or settings that I know and I know I enjoy, or if it's been run by a GM that's running one of said systems that I know I've enjoyed their games in the past.
0: Uh, I actually, I mean, that's... Sorry for interrupting you, but if you only play games that you know you like, how do you ever discover what you like?
2: With great difficulty. Seriously, it is actually something I find. Is, that's why my repertoire is very limited. OK. But I know there's been occasionally a book or a campaign or a game that comes up on my list that's like, oh, that part of a setting I know I, 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 know I like... I want someone to run this for me and finally someone at the club offered to run the first part of the Enemy Within campaign from Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay
1: and that is one of those games that's been on my list for a long time that I wish someone had run. So you've kind of got a catalogue of things you really want to play and you know one comes up and you know you're in there yeah yeah, 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 I've had those books on my shelf for donkey's years and I've wanted someone to run them So I,
2: because I've deliberately not looked at them and not read anything up on Beyond Them apart from going, that's four big books that
1: are up on my shelf that I wish someone would run. And I'm playing Red and Pleasant Land. I guess when I think about what engaged my interest in that, it was partly the book itself. It's a beautiful production and knowing the GM as well as a good GM, then I thought can't really go wrong with that combination and it's a kind of DD type game and i like DD type games so sounded appealing okay we've got the players our
2: captive audiences our prisoners sat at the table how do we get them to buy into their pcs because they're hopefully going to be playing pcs and not themselves with a, a role-playing game
1: well it occurs to me one of the things you could do is actually find out What actually brought them to the table was it because they really wanted to play that classic campaign, as you said, Matt? Was it because they wanted to try out the new system, like you did, Scott? Was it because they were sort of drawn to the the artwork and the look of the thing, like I was with Red and Pleasant Land? And I think that's perhaps helpful to the GM. I mean, I don't know what you can do with that sometimes, but if it's about the system, then you want to sort of show that off. Sometimes it's useful to know, maybe what your players actually came for? Do you know how many times I've been asked that
2: question at the game at uh, a game table? Never. Once. Oh really? One single time? by Matt Nixon when he ran Dead of Night at Conception a few years back. Right. When he asked, so you've signed up for this Dead of Night game that had a very minimal description on it other than saying, love crafty, and horror, why did you sign up? And that is the only time I've ever been asked that. That was because he, ne- he hadn't created anything for the game at all. Yeah, yeah. So that he was using people's perceptions and what their buy-in was to then craft what story he
0: then told. Oh, that's told really good. It. I think that's good, though, yeah. You, you've, <laughs> you've reminded me of a, a, a real example of buy-in here based on reputation. Uh, which was at, I can't remember, decon or Conception a few years ago. James Mullen uh, stuck for something to do in a game slot, basically just put up a blank sign-up sheet with his name on it, and it filled up almost immediately. Uh, he had no idea what he was running. I think he invented the system on the spot, but it was just, you know, uh, is James Mullen? Sign up. Hmm.
1: So I think we want to keep the players engaged. That's the whole theme of this episode. And one of the things that can perhaps allow them more sort of buy into the game is to create the kind of character they want to create and have some flexibility in doing that. Unless, of course, you're using pre-gens, in which case perhaps you allow them some options for
0: customization or something like that. Let's step back there. And if we are using pre-gens, how do you get the players to engage with those? Hmm. I
1: guess if you're the person creating the pre-gens, then you try and make them interesting. Hmm. That might mean putting a few interesting things in their background. Maybe they've got some people like a secret, something they know and other people don't. That sort of hooks them in. What else could we put in with pregens to make them more kind of grabby and interesting?
0: Yeah, in mean, cool abilities, um, strong ties into what's about to happen uh, so <laughs> that you know, as soon as events kick off, they look at that bit on the character sheet and sort of say, oh, yeah, yeah, this this is relevant to me. I know Todd Fuller's done that
2: with uh, going back to Unknown Armies because it's more customizable. the skills in there, or at least it used to be anyway, um, in second edition, that you could have your own bespoke skills. I remember sitting down in my first game with him that there was stand up and talk for long periods of time as a skill, being, <laughs> the, uh, being the reverend in the party. Yeah, I think things like that that really make you either chuckle or they give you a handle on how to play the PC straight off the bat.
0: Yeah, and similarly, I mean, when I'm writing the backgrounds for, for pre-gens, I'll generally try to put at least one thing that's going to throw the player for a curve as they're reading through it. And yeah, I'll hand out the pre-gens and I'll watch as they read through it. and I'm just waiting for that what the fuck moment as they're mm-hmm. going through. As soon as I see that reaction, I know I've got them.
1: I think also as Keeper, you've got a responsibility to know those pregens quite well. Yeah. So that once I've given you your pre-generated character, Matt, you've read it. And then in the game, I, as Keeper, can draw things out of you. I could say, you know, oh, what about your sister? She rings up or something like that that you know about, but nobody else does, perhaps, to kind of hook you in.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because yeah. I've found that sometimes as Keeper. I give out a bunch of pre gens, and I sort of think, shit, I didn't actually read those. You know, I scan them, but I don't really know what's in them.
0: Um, and I feel that's something I should avoid. Yeah, no, when it comes to that, I'll sit there and I'll make notes ahead of time and I'll make sure I've got a few bangs that are related to those things. And if they're
1: not using pre gens, I think as is more common, then I think trying to encourage them to make a bit of background, not pages and pages, and try and hook it into your scenario or campaign, try and make use of some of those things.
0: What do you do, though, for the players, and and I've encountered a fair few of them, who do want to write an entire novel about their characters, who want to write these incredibly detailed backgrounds? I mean, maybe they'll they'll help the player bring the character to life in their own mind. I'll ask the players to give me a digest of that, you know, pick out three points or whatever Mm. that they think I need to know about, what they want to see come into play. I mean, the rest of it, yeah, sure it might help them it might interest them to do that but as, I, I as a gm do not want to sit there and read through pages and pages of this and try to work out what to incorporate yeah i've never had somebody give me
1: pages i've had somebody oh, bring me yeah, up I and chat start. over uh, their character and their background which was quite interesting and sort of building background together I guess we're talking about engagement, so you don't want to put them off
0: by that, throwing right. it back at them. Well, that, that's what, what I was saying about, you know, what do you do when that happens? Because well, I've you... never had it happen, Scott, right. so yeah. <laughs> what
1: would I do if somebody turned up with a few pages of background at the table? That would be a problem because it's going to take a while to read that and digest it, so I'd ask for it in advance, I guess, if you're going to do that. So what about us when we've sat down at a table and we've created a character... Do you feel fired up to play it, or do you sometimes feel like, oh, I don't really know what to do with this guy? Because I've had both. I'm very much the latter. I prefer
2: to ride it and use it in play. Creating a character, I think, is a really boring, monotonous waste of my time. All right. But the one time I can think of where I have actually made it funny for the Keeper, or the Ref, in this case, was a Werewolf the Forsaken game. The whole background was drawn from references for lyrics in Warren Zevon songs. And I tried to cram as many uh, different songs and different lyric references in there as I could. So I think I got up to 17 uh, songs in the end and called him Mr. Bad Example. What about
0: you, Scott? Uh, I love creating characters. Uh, it's it's one of my favourite parts of the game because I I don't know it just connects with that creative part of my brain. Uh, it's more because of a mismatch of of expectations with you know what the game was pitched as and 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 you know the the character I created to interface with that and the way the games turned out that it hasn't really worked for me. But most of the time I trust myself to come up with characters that have got enough quirks or unusual things or things that I'm going to enjoy bringing into play, whether they're background elements or personality traits or abilities or skills, that I'm looking forward to actually bringing into the game. And that's the thing,
1: you're looking forward to bringing into the game. And that's the key to engagement, that you're looking forward to doing these things, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and I feel like it's my responsibility as a player to do that. It's all very well creating a character and then sitting down and looking at the GM and saying, right, now you bring the fun. You are a player at the table. You've got the responsibility. You've created your tool for interacting with this. Uh, You've created your own agency. If you're a responsible player, you should make that something you're going to enjoy doing. Because I sometimes
1: find that I create a player character, particularly if I put more effort into it, I create something, and then when I sit down to play it, I'm like, I'm not really sure how to play this. I'm not. I've written uh. this thing down. I'm not really sure how to bring this in. I'd much prefer just to start off with a a really minimal framework or a archetype, stereotype type character, and then just organically build it as I go.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, sure, characters kind of grow and change. Yeah, but no, I mean, from the outset, for me, there's got to be something. That hooks me there, something that... Yeah, yeah, yeah something that like... hooks
1: you, but but if it's too convoluted, if there's too many facets to it, sometimes I just, I'd rather have less facets than more. Yeah,
2: I'm, try I'm the same and... as...
1: I know where Paul's coming from, this is exactly what my feeling is.
0: When you say facets, I mean, are you talking mechanically? no not mechanical
1: not in terms of skills and spells and all that sort of stuff i'm talking about you know your interrelationships with other characters your motivations your the aspirations of your character what they want to do if they're sort of pulling in different directions sometimes i'm just struggle to sort of put my head in that space of, of the mm. character because i'm perhaps find it hard to do that
0: but if they're pulling in different directions that's where drama comes from
1: Yes, it can be, but I think it's drama when you're in the shoes of that character. But if you find it hard to put yourself in that character's shoes, to feel what that character's feeling, I think that almost blocks the drama because you... Okay. struggle to get into it.
0: Well, I mean, admittedly, yes. I mean, sometimes when I've created characters, I put background elements or connections and stuff like that in there where I've assumed that they're going to become important or, you know, I, I don't know exactly where they're going. And I look at it from the old throwing spaghetti at a wall and seeing what sticks approach. If, you know, I end up putting things in there and... I'm not sure of what to do with them or they never seem to come into play, then just because it's on the sheet doesn't mean that I have to, to play it up. You know, I'll concentrate on the things that are giving me pleasure.
1: Now, they've got their characters and you've got your opening scene. How do you maintain their engagement and not just sort of throw something at them? What if they just kind of bounce off it and lose interest? 30 seconds ago, pulling the pin on that grenade and throwing it
2: into the, <laughs> into the fuel <laughs> dump was a really good idea. <laughs> You use that line far too often, Scott, (laughs) but it was a great one.
0: (laughs) Uh, But yeah, yeah, I mean, starting out with a figurative, or in that case, literal bang, Mm -hmm. that's a really good way of getting people's attention. Throw them in the deep end. It's something I do an awful lot in convention games and and one-shots. And, I mean, even then in campaigns where there's the opportunity to do a bit of scene framing, I think starting out a session or, you know, starting out a new chapter with... Being dropped into the middle of a bad situation or a tense situation is a, a really good way of drawing everyone in.
1: Yeah, because as a player, I don't have to sort of think, oh, what shall I do now? How shall I do? What shall I do? I just think, hell, there's a thing that's going to blow up, or, you know, something disastrous is about to happen or is happening, and I need to uh, act on it now. Yeah. Although sometimes I quite like just starting off with not much happening and just letting the players play their characters for a bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, for example, when I wrote Lampost in Bloom, I very deliberately decided not to start that one off with a bang, that it is just a group of people sitting around uh, at at a barbecue in, in the late summer and, and talking to each other, but the characters are all front loaded with enough bad stuff that is happening, that the conversation becomes quite tense almost immediately. But that's a, a rare one for me in that it starts gentle and then escalates, albeit you know, fairly quickly. And I have to say, for me, the
1: classic Mars and Tep opening scene was a kind of a grabby one. It immediately places you in New York. It's not quite an immediate res thing, but it pretty much is. You get there and bad stuff has happened. I don't know if I want to give spoilers, but just look to the name of this show. He's there <laughs> and he's not too well. And, you know, it's. <laughs> There's a mystery there and you've got stuff to do. You know, you've got it in your lap.
0: But the way it's framed, yeah, when you're not thrown immediately into it, mm. it's just the situation is happening perhaps a few feet away from you and you have to decide how you're going to engage with it, not, not fully knowing what's going on. And now you've got to go to Peru before you even get there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear it's lovely at this time of year. <laughs>
2: I think the opening scene for me that when I was thinking of what ones have really grabbed me Wasn't anything to do with what was happening It was how it was physically presented at the game table And it's why now I have a very large collection of glow-in-the-dark dice Thank you Paul Oh Oh Oh, really? Yeah, uh, Walker in the Waste. We sat at night in winter Up at York House for the the MK Club In the dark with torches rolling our dice which is why I decided a, a UV light and glow-in-the-dark dice would be the way forward.
0: You, you do that a lot, don't you, Paul? Because there's another scenario you ran where you basically started out by switching the lights out. And so, say, so you wake up in the dark. Th- then we oh, move yeah. to a flashback and you turn the light back on again and we play the flashback, then you turn the light off again.
1: I guess that is a common thing, then, yeah. yeah you, you, like, like you like your place to be out. in the dark.
0: Yeah, I do. Some people really don't
1: like that. Yeah. I love it.
0: Well, between that and blindfolding people, which you've done before as well. Yeah, that's true. Okay. You just resent your players being able to see you, don't you?
1: Yeah. Best to keep them literally in the dark. I've <laughs> just taken it a step further. It, it wasn't an opening scenario, but uh, opening
2: scene, but I remember someone pulled that trick in a World of Darkness game one time, a Mortals game. It was coming up to the big scene at the end of the game. They flicked off the lights, told us to t- um, to close our eyes, and then filled the room with this white noise so just to mask the sound of someone coming in Mm. in robes with this skull in their hand and then stood right in the middle of the room so that when we turned uh, when of course they turned the lights on cut the sound and asked everyone to open their eyes there was a good three or four seconds before we went holy shit what's that thing oh
0: that's pretty cool I like
2: that
1: yeah yeah, nice
0: (laughs) I, and and from a more mundane point of view, I remember a story that uh, my friend Trudy told me some time back of a start to a game which got her attention, which was just a variant of the old classic, um, you know, you all meet in an inn. And it was, you know, you're all sitting around in an inn. An old wizard comes up to you and slaps a three-foot lizard on the table.
1: <laughs> he was just pleased to see you,
0: obviously. <laughs>
1: Well, I guess that's a good point. Physical things or sounds or atmosphere or candles or using little torches or those sort of things can engage you because they take you out of the everyday mundane. It's that removal from the everyday and suddenly you're into something else. And it's like watching a movie. You know, you you forget the real world and you're, you're immersed in it, hopefully. And that's kind of what I want to be with the game. So once the opening scene is over, there's all sorts of things we can do to keep the ball rolling, I guess. The first question is, how do you know if they're engaged or not? As, I, as, as yeah. I'm speaking as GM, you know.
0: That's actually a really good question. I mean, I, I rely an awful lot on reading body language uh, for doing that. I'll keep an eye on the players during the game if I notice some people are being quiet or some people, you know, some people actually sort of really physically withdraw from the game. I've seen you do this, Paul, on a couple of occasions where if you're not enjoying the game, your body language changes. You, you basically sit there and hug yourself and sit back from the table and, rock. and to look off into space. No, <laughs> seriously, you do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, you know, it's... it's, it's, it's mostly in your big, game, Scott. It is, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a pretty big flag that you're not enjoying the right. game. Right. OK. Um, but, but, yeah, just being quiet will often mean that.
2: I was just about to say that I think, for my gauge, it is definitely quietness. Although, I'd be I'd be interested to see what your uh, your take on my disengaging in-game is, because I'm not sure if it's happened or not. I,
0: no, I don't think I've ever seen it happen with you. Uh, you're obviously a lot less picky than Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just picky on different levels. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. The, the difference I see between your two playstyles on this front is, I think that You're more willing to try to make the game fun. I mean, Paul, if he's not enjoying the game, won't act, will not actively try to rectify that. As soon as he's not enjoying it, he'll withdraw from it, and you know, it's no longer his problem. Whereas I think with you, you know, if you're not enjoying it so much, you'll you'll try to find ways of enjoying it.
1: Yeah, I'll try to blow I've known, shit up. I've yeah. known Matt sit there and play online Sudoku though. Oh yes,
2: yeah. There are there are times I I will get very <gasps> passive aggressive or com- or again if it gets yeah. beyond the point oh, right. of no return I'll play another game at the table. Right, yeah.
0: well, I've never actually seen that.
1: Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I've had some players who are really quiet, and then you ask them, you enjoy. Oh yeah, it's great.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and that's the thing. That's that makes just it the way they yeah. are. Yeah, I, I, I know. I, there's some people I game with fairly regularly, conventions, who sign up for all my games. And, yeah, you know, at the end of it, I, I'm really wondering every time, you know, did you actually enjoy that? I mean, you said about three words throughout the whole game.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've, again, I've had that at the Student Nationals a few years back, where I had a player sit down, and over the course of a six-hour game, she said maybe five words. But, again, then I've had, again, with another group that I've started running for, uh, we've had the discussion about different play styles and it came up from someone saying, this person is fairly quiet, this person isn't, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, that's just how they play their games. Yeah. And, yeah, it's I won't stand in the way of making people enjoy a game on my set of terms. I'll let them enjoy it on their set.
0: But I guess it depends very much whether you know the players. Mm-hmm. I, if you know that someone's normally fairly outgoing, but they're sitting there being quiet, then... Well, I mean, it can mean a few things. I mean, maybe they're disengaged from the game because it's not their kind of thing or because they've created a character they don't enjoy or, you know, they're being sidelined. Or maybe something's going on in their personal life and they're Mm -hmm. just distracted by that. And no matter what was going on in the game, they were never going to engage with it that evening.
2: Well, it could be even if they're quiet, they're just sat there processing, especially if there's a lot of info to go around.
1: So, I mean, you can ask them, but... Some people, particularly maybe British people, I don't know, they're going to be polite and sort of say,
0: oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's great, it's good, I'm enjoying it, yeah, yeah, it's good,
1: and then go back to their iPad, you know. Yeah. But, um, I,
0: and, and also, if I'm running a shit game, I don't want to know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you, Scott. What? I feel one way to sort of test engagement is at the start of the game for me to ask the players to do the recap yes, and sort mm-hmm. of say what's happened. If they're enthusiastic and can remember what happened... That's a fairly good sign that they were at least engaged in the last session. And also to sort of ask them, you know, what are you going to do next? And if they're just rubbing their chins and saying, I don't know, then probably not so good. On that theme, what can cause players to disengage with the game, would you say? What sort of major things are there out there that I guess pitfalls that we should look out for?
0: Well, one fairly unusual thing for me is my hearing's not very good. And if Mm. I'm playing in a noisy environment, I mean, this happened to me particularly at one convention I went to, where we were playing in an open gaming hall, and it was an unfamiliar system, and it was a GM I hadn't played with before, and I only, I think, knew one of the players at the table. Because of the noise level in there, I literally could not understand anything the GM said. I could only really hear what the players sitting on either side of me were saying. Yeah, you know, a couple of the times, yeah, you know, uh, the the action would come round to me, or someone would ask me something to do, and I I'd, I was only half understanding what was going on at best, and I I try to chip in with something, and they you know the player sitting next to me got quite angry with me a couple of times because he thought I wasn't taking the game seriously because what I was saying wasn't appropriate, but it was just yeah you know, it was appropriate. Clearly didn't was know going you very well, like. Scott. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but you know, after that had happened a couple of times, I just shut up and you know, I, I, I did yeah. not take any. Well, I think we can anymore.
1: all be i would have thought sympathetic with that because i've been in games you know in a noisy room and yeah it's really hard if you can't hear then it's quite understandable you can't really be engaged can you no i've had it i think actually at the same convention um that scott's referring to where
2: i had one player who from the start said the basically pointed out the hearing aid and said look i'm nearly deaf i've got problems hearing and there was just so much ambient noise in the room. The guy had to apologise after about 10 minutes. He got up and said, I can't hear a word you're saying. I can't hear a word of the person sitting next to me. I'm I'm going to bow out now. Nothing to do with you. Just I
0: can't physically engage. Yeah, so, I really wish I'd done that in this game because you know, it was four hours that I just didn't enjoy.
1: Mm-hmm. So just simply the environment can cause a lack of engagement. That's fair yeah. enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think a mismatch of expectations can be a turn off. We talked about that pitch. You're all fired up for it. Then you turn up and it turns out to be something quite unlike what you expected and not in a good way.
0: Can you think of any particular examples of that?
1: I guess this is beyond the pitch. I can recall a game we played where we spent two sessions creating characters, really in-depth characters with lots of interconnections and it was a complex system. It was using Burning Wheel and it was all ready to, to hit the, the ground running. And then when we started play, we were presented with a complex plot. And all that stuff that we created for our characters, just ground to a halt and we had yeah. to look over there because there was something else
0: i mean that was interesting because we'd actually sat there and we diagrammed all the relationships and we actually had a complex uh, plot there already with all the diagrammed relationships and npcs and the points of conflict between them and the different agendas and stuff like that and you know, at that stage, we didn't actually need any outside uh, factors in order to make that into a tense, exciting game.
1: So the mismatch was that it was a kind of world-burning game and was going to be, I don't know if improvised is the right word, but, you know, self-motivating, if mm-hmm. you like. It didn't want something else coming in as a plot in a sort of more traditional way that you were kind of expected to solve.
0: Yeah, and I I remember the other thing that really disengaged me from that particular game... Was the mechanics? I mean, it wasn't just that Burning Wheel is crunchy, which it is. I mean, it's a really fucking crunchy game. But it was the fact that the GM had told us that you know we'd be slowly introduced the the mechanics, that it was modular, and that you know we'd have everything explained. And so yeah, I was playing a character whose whole thing was that he was a very manipulative spy master. One of the first conflicts I have is what's it called, a battle of wills, or no, a battle of wits. I think in basically an extended social conflict that's played out like a combat in in Burning Wheel. There's a real tactical side to it, you've got to sort of plot out a few moves ahead of time and stuff like that. My, you know, incredibly meditative character, his you know, one sort of shining scene in this, you know, it's sort of just got stomp, stomp, stomp by a minor NPC, and it's oh okay, right. Because- well I think there's there's if I
1: may, there's two things there then. I think one is signing up for a game and then finding the mechanics are just overly complex when you don't want overly complex well, mechanics. Well, n-
0: n- not just that, but not, I mean, I can sometimes cope with overly complex mechanics as long as people take the time to explain them to me.
1: But sometimes that can be a turn-off for yeah. people, I think. You know, you sort of say, oh, yes, come and sit down and join us for a game of Rollmaster. Yeah. Mm. Well, they're maybe going to like it, but it's kind of in at the deep you're, end. You're
0: probably never going to see them again.
1: <laughs> and the other thing that you just illustrated there was how you've designed this character to be really good at this thing and then the first time they have to use it, they get totally wiped out and not in a kind of encouraging way.
0: Yeah, and I, I've probably been guilty of that a couple of times on the the GM front. I, I remember a game of Sorcerer I ran some time back. I, I, I may have mentioned this when we did the Sorcerer episode. It was when we were playing Dictionary of Moo and someone had created, um, you know, really quite a powerful sorcerer. I think his, his demon was powered armor or something like that. And, you know, he, he was very, very combat effective as long as he was using his demon. And I'd I'd explained all this to the players ahead of time, how their characters were relatively ordinary, but they they relied on their demons. But I think there was a bit of mismatch because the player in question obviously thought that he created a sort of ultimate badass character. So the first time out, he goes out, picks up a fight with an NPC. Because, you know, his demon was fairly demanding, he decides not to use it in that fight. And he gets the shit kicked out of him i thought it might work on one level you know sort of showing them how important the demons were but what it actually did i think was just put them off the game completely
1: yeah so what i'm getting from that is that as a player i've turned up to your game and i think oh this is going to be really cool and i've got this image of it in my head how it's going to be but that actually doesn't match what you've got and what the game does yeah
0: and so there's this mismatch there I did try to mitigate that by, you know, even during the the conflict, stepping aside and sort of saying, you know, this, you know, I, I think you've you've got the wrong expectations about this game. You know, unless you play your character as a sorcerer, unless you rely on the demons, this is not going to go your way. Mm. But the player was expecting something more like D and D, where any fight that he picked would be matched to his his ability level, without him really trying so too hard. Games like that, you
1: need to have a good understanding of what the game's about, and kind of not necessarily the mechanics in detail,
0: but the setting and how things work in that world. I guess this is also at the heart of why there are a lot of people out there who won't play Call of Cthulhu, because there's this idea that Call of Cthulhu is the game where you can't win, you just die and go mad. I see this question crop up an awful lot on Reddit, for example, where people are talking about, oh, what kind of encounter should I throw at a new party of investigators? What is a fair fight for them? or and it's yeah, the experience call of Cthulhu keepers, you know, chipping in, sort of saying there is no such thing as a fair fight in Call of Cthulhu. No Aldous challenge said, ratings. Yeah, I would just said Starspawn, nice and quick <laughs> and over with, really quickly. But but that that then is why people had this you know <laughs> reputation, or why they have this belief that the Call of Cthulhu is the unwinnable game, mm-hmm. because they're going in, their expectation is, oh, this is a role playing game. It's got a combat system. There's a monster. We fight and kill the monster. So
1: as a keeper, what do I do about that? You know, whether I'm running Call of Cthulhu or as a GM of some other game, and I want to engage my players and keep them engaged, I guess it's communicating what the game's about effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose it also really depends on what their
2: definition of win is in that example. That as long as you're all singing from the same hymn sheet and have got your same expectations, then it will help from the outset. Thinking of going back to things that have disengaged people, we've had complexity of mechanics but also complexity of plot can be a real big one there as well definitely now i'll fully hold my hand up and say i like to write and run complicated games i like to have a lot of npcs out there i like to have i'll uh, I'll second that i I, I, I
0: mean this is something that i i mean i've play tested a lot of your games you know running things that, that you've written for other groups and played them as a player and i must admit that's the one thing I really struggle with in your game sometimes which is my aging memory cannot keep track of that many NPCs it just becomes overwhelming by the time there are 20 NPCs in a game as there are in some of yours Mm -hmm. my brain can keep track of maybe a half dozen beyond that point it just becomes very difficult for me either as a GM or as a player to keep track of what the hell all these people want what they're doing what they should be doing.
2: This is where my point was going, was it's complex is a very subjective term. One person might find that game to be very easy to run, another person might find it almost impossible for whatever reason, say, such as ones, ones you've laid out there. But then it's for the person who sits running the game and thinking it's very simple, and they can obviously see where all the parts come into play, when you have players on the other side of the board who go, we haven't got a clue what to do, yeah. it can be very frustrating for for both sides. I've been a player in that exact same scenario where we played one of the Unknown Armies games. I think it's from Weep called The Green Glass Grail. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we played it and we had we never finished it because we had no fucking idea what to do with it. But the GM sat there looking down at the scenario, kind of head in hands going, well, I, I don't know how I can help
0: you. I do sometimes write stuff that does involve a, a fair cast of NPCs or where it's got a fairly complex plot. But what I try to do in order to mitigate that is make it modular, that you certainly won't be encountering all the NPCs at the same time. They'll generally be tied in with particular scenes or locations or events. What I'll try to do to mitigate the complexity is any time that I see the players struggling with that whole what-do-we-do thing is that I'll reach into my bag of bangs and throw something in there so that at least they've got that thing to engage with. And if they don't understand, you know, the whole large-scale plot of what's going on, that's maybe not important. There are plenty of books and films out there with characters who are out of their depth in, in really complex, frightening environments. And I think that can add to the sense of horror. You know, you, you don't necessarily want the characters to know everything that's going on. But what you do want them to be able to do is focus on what's going on at that moment.
1: Yeah, and you want them to be engaged, right, with with what's going on at that moment. I mean, I'm a fan of keeping it simpler, I suppose, trying to keep the plot, the scenario, simpler and take out complications because I think usually on the other side of the screen it seems more complicated than it is to the players, even if it's relatively straightforward. They're going to add in their own complexities to it. They're going to be misunderstandings. They're going to create things that they think is going on And I guess the other classic thing is railroading. If you just feel like, it doesn't really matter what I do here after a while, it's like, do you want to just roll the dice for me? Because I might as well go home.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, I have had that experience a few times where it's that feeling of, do I need to be here? The game will run just the same without me.
2: Or almost on a parallel track to that. (laughs) Ah. Whatever you try and do, it fails. Yeah. that If you've got no... Way to affect what's happening in the game? Why the hell even bother?
0: Well, and and a related thing there, which I've seen in Call of Cthulhu and particularly, but a few other games, is GMs who ask for rolls for things that they really shouldn't be asking rolls for. Mm. It can be funny sometimes, you know, having you know, these repeated failures, but if your, your character has to roll drive auto to go down to the shops and they crash on the way there... I always you know, see, like yeah. that, G- yes, Give me yes. a jump
1: roll to get out of bed. Yeah, yeah. unnecessary use of mechanics.
0: And, and, yeah, I mean, I've played with a few GMs who do that, and that will put me off a game so fast. Well, for myself, we played a game at the
1: club recently, Night Witches, which seemed really promising. It's a Powered by the Apocalypse game with uh, Russian women flying planes in the Second World War, doing night missions, really dangerous things. And it sounds very exciting. And I think perhaps for a one-off, I can see it working really well. But we found for over several weeks of play, it just became very repetitive And it was hard to find motivation for your characters. It was hard to kind of engage um, with what the characters were doing. Maybe we weren't doing it right. I don't know. But yeah, after a while, we were just like, okay, let's... I think it was pretty much unanimous. Let's just give up with this and play something else. I think for me, it's... I can think of two key examples where the
2: same thing happened, and in both cases it's it's, um, the games that I've enjoyed the least in the last few years. One to the point where I I think it's the first game in 16 years that I've walked out on, which is when anything that you try at the table is met by a response from the GM that either it doesn't work, it fails, or that all your efforts effectively amount to nothing. And that you are constantly beat down by the setting or you can't engage with it or basically anything that you do will land you either in the shit or deeper in it. And at that point, I say, I completely disengage. I,
1: I walk away from the situation. I've got no motivation to remain in this position at all. Yeah, I can sympathise with that. Mm. It's okay for that to happen occasionally or sometimes you know, if you're failing roles or whatever. But to engage somebody, you need to give them some success. You need to let them... Make the most of their character and, and do some stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, I, I've seen all sorts of reasons why GMs might do that. Sometimes it is, I think, because they might think it's funny. Sometimes it's because they're power tripping. I've I've seen this a few times, uh, where it's sort of oh I want to show how much control I've ha- I've got over the players. I haven't seen this much since I was a teenager, but I think particularly with younger gamers that's you know not as uncommon as we might like. And sometimes it's because it is a form of railroading by stopping you know, different things from happening. You can control by allowing the one thing that does happen where the game is going. And I remember. You know, sort of a combination of these things. There was a guy I gamed with a lot at university who you know did all of these things all the time, I and mean, he was one of the worst GMs I've ever played with. And there, there was one moment... I mean, we'd been playing a and d campaign for a while, and at some point, one of the players was playing a rogue and decided that, you know, I, I can't remember, we were trying to break into a city under siege or something like that. And he decides that he's going to get past the guards or the, the enemy troops by swinging on a rope and doing the swashbuckling thing and swinging up over the wall. and And so he does this, and the GM sort of says... Well, I mean, that's, that kind of stuff doesn't work in real life. So, obviously, as soon as you do that, you know, you try swinging on it, you break your arm, you dislocate it, you do this many... No rolls involved. You just do this many hit points of damage for even trying it. Yeah. And then, you know, you kind of fall down, in the you know, injured in the midst of all these enemies. Yeah. And it's sort of, okay, well... That was a monumentally dickish thing to do, and did nothing to make the game more fun for anyone. And it well done, have, you.
1: It wouldn't have hurt the game if it had just let that happen. No, it wouldn't have broken anything. Or, or, or just even, let the player even, show off a bit. Or even fun. if he'd
0: allowed a roll, you know, if, hmm. if that had happened because he said, Made a deck, "Make a dex roll," and then the player had rolled a one, and it's sort of, "Oh, okay, right, yeah, uh, yeah, you, you've botched that, and you know, this this thing happens." I don't think anyone complains when. Something bad happens because the dice fuck them over. But the GM just sort of says, oh, no, this bad thing happens because you attempted it.
1: Yeah. Or that, you know, this makes me sort of think that of GMs who have a very strong idea of what's going to happen in their games. Yes. And as a player, you're kind of along for the ride, really. And if you're not doing what they want or what they've envisaged... You know, as you were saying, Matt, you can never actually achieve anything. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you weren't doing what the GM had in mind that should be done, or to ignore every
2: plot hook we possibly could and go and do our own thing because that was the only thing that we could do at that. Point.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sure we would have failed at that too. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What is that time? Once again, when we thank you, thank every one of you who has given us money, who has sponsored us through Patreon. This allows us to pay for the running cost of the show, to invest in new equipment, and uh, to pay for our time in creating this podcast, which is actually more than you might think. So, thank you to each and every one of you, and we have someone new to thank this week. And this week, our thanks go out to Nick Edwards. So, thank you very much, Nick.
2: Yes,
1: thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. Meanwhile, on social media... And yet again, we've had another iTunes review. Thank you very much to Uncle Riotus. This
0: podcast is a rare thing indeed. Knowledgeable hosts who bring different perspectives and a love for their topic without being preachy. One of the few podcasts that I listen to every episode while also working through the considerable backlog.
2: You're going to take a 1D10 sand hit if you go get through all that, I'm telling you. <laughs> well, thank you very much,
0: Uncle Riotus. Yeah, thank very you. Good of you. Indeed, thank, thank you. you. I, I'm sure I must have got preachy at some stage.
2: <laughs> Thou shalt play cult. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and also, we've had some feedback about our recent episode on Cats in Lovecraft and Call of Cthulhu. Over on our Google Plus community, David Jacobs has this to say... Another relevant aside is A Dream of a Thousand
2: Cats from Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics, which deals with Cats' worldview and the nature of consensus reality, and fits quite well with the tone of HPL's musings regarding our furry friends, in my honest opinion. There's also an urban legend in comic circles regarding this particular issue of Sandman, that Cats seem supernaturally drawn to destroying copies of it, as if trying to suppress the truth long enough for that thousandth cat to dream of the world that was and put things aright. I love that. That is great.
0: <laughs> yes, I, I do have my copy of that comic safely in the filing cabinet, well away from chaos and anarchy. Oh,
2: I've only got it in the um, the Absolute Sandman collections, but I've got it in a nice slip case, bottom of a uh, glass fronted bookcase that doesn't open too far because the. the is uh, bird proofing? Uh, uh, it's very bird proof. That's the point. Yeah. <laughs> does, does
0: it have a sign on the front saying "Be aware of the leopard"?
2: Well, it's not down a flight of steps in the basement in a filing cabinet, so close
0: uh but yes yeah i i think we did actually talk about this on the podcast i think we did i
1: think it um accidentally got edited out scott sorry about that
0: i i I trust you to edit out most things i see
1: it was only about comics so you know i thought it was my rant (laughs) on on religion religion that was the uh, the one to cut out (laughs) yeah your rant on religion went in the can as well Matt. yeah (laughs) Yeah. uh,
0: for different reasons (laughs) but doesn't that happen once an episode
2: I try to keep it down. It's all that being preachy thing.
0: But, yeah, I I do love Dream of a Thousand Cats, and I think, yeah, as you say, it's it's great inspiration. I'd really love to think of the cats of Althar as being very much like the cats in that comic, just there, biding their time, waiting until the day when they are masters of the dreamlands once more and could go back to the business of hunting humans. And on our website,
1: blasphemoustomes.com,
0: Brett Kramer posts...
1: We had some cat and cat-adjacent material in Arkham Gazette number 3, with an article on witches' familiars, as well as rat things, cat things, etc., and a piece about dried cats, a practice where people would seal a dead cat in the walls or floors of a new building, supposedly to ward against witches.
0: And this is a plot point that came up in one of my favourite bits of television, which we've talked about on the podcast before, uh, which was Baby, one of the episodes of Beasts by Nigel Neal. In that case, it wasn't actually a cat, but it was based very much on that bit of mythology.
2: I was just thinking The Black Cat, the Edgar Allan Poe story. Mm. That gives a whole new perspective to it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, whatever else the protagonist had to worry about, he didn't have to worry about witches.
2: (laughs) And over on that big giant book of faces, Livio Boer states, Cats and Lovecraft are a great match, making a game
0: featuring both of them at the moment. Yeah, I did chat a bit with him about this. um, And when he said making a game, he means a computer game. I had a look at the website for it and the little samples. And, yeah, this is a fantastic game. It's called Gibbous. And it's a point-and-click adventure, very much in the style of the old LucasArts games. So, you know, things like Day of the Tentacle and Sam and Max and stuff like that. Yeah, the, the voice acting on it is amazing. The music's amazing. The animation's fantastic. And it looks like a lot of fun.
1: And if you want to know what Gibbous means... Go back to a previous word of the week. A long time ago, I can't remember which one.
0: <laughs> the best feedback we had was my cats coming to me at night and whispering in my ears as I slept, telling me how much they enjoyed it and how much this reflected the the secret truths of the universe. And also, apparently, I don't feed them enough.
1: And to wrap up, a few final thoughts about engaging players in role-playing games.
0: Well, first of all, Do we ever feel like we have to coerce a player into engaging with the game?
1: Do we ever have to coerce them? I think sometimes I have to work at engaging them. And as GM, I'm kind of aware that, you know, I want to get people involved. And if they're looking a bit uncertain or whatever, then I try and sort of think of how I can sort of bring them into the game and, and also make sure that, you know, that loud person isn't getting all the
0: attention and that everybody else is getting some love too. But but, Coerce them? How do you mean? There's a very specific example I have in mind, and uh, I mean, this will resonate with Matt, I'm sure, um, in that there's someone that I I think we've all gamed with at some stage, a friend of ours who... She will, you know, quite happily uh, agree to play horror games Call of Cthulhu or, you know, Cthulhu Games, uh, or Unknown Armies, and... um, when her character is put in a bad situation, it's not even that you know she'll go out of her way to make sure the character survives. It's that she will do everything she can to avoid her character engaging with the premise of the scenario. Sort of, well, obviously, you know, this is a scary situation, so my character would hide from the whole thing or run away or call the police. or It doesn't matter how much personal motivation her character has to get involved with it. The fact that she's agreed to play an investigative game her character will never investigate anything and will do everything she can to avoid I mean can you bring the horror to the player a character uh, yeah in which case you know she will you know hide run away it got to the stage where there was one particular scenario i ran where there was sort of a timer that unless the characters did something about it they were going to die in about 48 hours she jumped on a train and left yeah that's right yeah. she went down to the south coast you know disengaged from the rest of the players and sort of said right i will spent my last 48 hours and you know enjoying looking at the sea and stuff like that and and wait to die so it sounds like a mis- mismatch
1: of games really that you're not yeah. Why she wanted to play horror games and not play them.
0: I I, I don't know. I never really got my head around that. Mm. I never found a way of actually dealing with that. And I just wondered whether either of you two had ever encountered anything similar and how you would try to get a player like that to engage.
1: I think to a lesser degree, I've encountered the thing in numerous games as GM and as a player where there's something going on and I'm like, oh yeah, let's go and get into it and sort of go there and do the thing. And everybody else is like, Oh, let's just plan it out for another hour. Oh, let's, God, uh, yes. let's, let's, you know, go through all our skills and see who's doing what and let's surveil it. And, uh, you know, how can we just research that thing a bit more?
2: I, I would be yelling at this point. Fuck it. I kick the door
1: down. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I, I, oh, I, on, I've it's been that fun. person. Yeah. <laughs> and like D and D games without a dungeon. That's the reason to, to disengage from me, because I'm just
0: like, it's a d and game, can we get in the dungeon now? <laughs> <laughs> and the other question I wanted to ask you to, just to wrap this up, is when you're running a game, do you think of it as your game or is it our game? Uh, I'd position
2: a third answer. I'd just say the game. Um, I don't like to take ownership. I, I might take ownership to the point and say, I wrote this. But I don't like that degree of ownership in that respect. Partly because I'm worried if it crashes and burns that I don't want, I don't want to to drag me down with it. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but no, I, I, so I, plausible yeah. deniability. That too. If it goes
1: really well, <laughs> oh yeah, that's mine then. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But then, in your opinion, there, how does it differ from being our game if it's the game?
2: I think it's we we are here to play the game. So it's it's kind of halfway between mine and ours that it's, there's a bit of everyone involved in it to one degree or another. But we have different, obviously, roles or different things that we bring to the table when we are playing or running that game.
0: How about you, Paul? I guess it depends
1: on which scenario it is. Mm. Some of them have got a much sort of stronger form and...
0: They're more plot-driven.
1: Yeah. So I perhaps feel like I'm showcasing the scenario. But generally... I think the ideal would be for it to be more our game, you know, a shared experience and everybody having a, a stake in that. Yeah. What about I mean, you, Scott?
0: yeah. For, for me, it varies an awful lot depending on whether it's a one-shot or a campaign. If it's a campaign, you know, it's, it's automatically, in my mind, our game because, well, for a start, I'm too lazy to sit there and write an entire campaign. I, I want it to be based almost entirely on player input. And that inherently makes it collaborative for one shots particularly stuff i'm writing for publication yeah i mean there is something of what you were just talking about where i'm trying to create maybe not a consistent experience but a known quantity trying to create you know enough form there that is going to be reliably playable by other gms yeah you're
1: trying to make something that you can give physically to someone else that they can run it well
0: yeah and that that pretty much inherently means it can't be as collaborative as the more improvisational games that, that build upon player input that i normally run i mean that said i do always try to make sure that what the players are doing matters and will shape the outcome and and that i'm not just you know insisting that they're along for the ride but yeah it still i guess in that case feels more like my game which is less less than ideal in my opinion But I guess
1: if it is a game that I've written, particularly a one-shot, as you say, Scott, I think you tend to feel more ownership of those, Mm. perhaps, and it's published and I hear actual play of somebody else running it online, I like that they've made it their game and I like that they do it differently to how I'd envisaged. And sometimes, you know, those things, I think, oh, yeah, they're really cool and I'd do those. And sometimes I think I wouldn't do that, but that's the way you want to do it. Great. Well, I hope you've stayed engaged with the podcast all the way through to the end. If you have, then... Thank you very much, and it's a good night from me.
0: Cheerio from me. And
1: farewell from me.
0: Hello.